you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. Paul, it is fantastic to be back for a new year. We're back uh, after uh, our summer break and our guest on the first show uh, for 2019. Uh, delighted to have him back on the show, a regular guest here on Devils and Details. It's Shane Oliver, uh, who's the Chief Economist and Chief Investment Strategist at AMP Capital. Shane, welcome back on the show. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. It's great to have you back here. Now, everything has changed. Um, so since we all last spoke... Um, Right, so we had the RBA with its monthly rate statement on Tuesday, which um, noted a bit of the deterioration in conditions, um, but didn't do much in terms of forward guidance or anything. But then on Wednesday, uh, Phil Lowe, the RBA governor, uh, spoke at the National Press Club, and he knew exactly what he was doing and saying, this is the quote, looking forward, there are scenarios where the next move in the cash rate is up, and there are other scenarios where it is down. Over the past year, the next move uh, it, the next move is up scenarios were more likely than the next move is down scenarios. Today, the probabilities appear to be more evenly balanced. So a very clear change in position from the RBA there. And I think one of the things has been that this deterioration in conditions has been looming for some time, been building a bit of momentum. We're really starting to see it in the data flow now. Uh, services PMI gone negative, uh, housing approvals really falling fast. Uh, trade data um, for December showed weak demand for imports down 6%, I think the biggest decline on record. Um, and Shane, uh, you were um, among, amongst the economists at the major institutions here in Australia, you were, um, you know, you've been ahead of this conversation and uh, uh, were the first uh, uh, among your peers to decide that uh, the RBA would need to cut. Um, so, um, so where was the point for you when you were finally convinced um, uh, to, to start forecasting cuts? You said, okay, because it's a big deal, isn't it, to move your, your call? It was a big deal, and for a long time I'd been on of the view that rates would be on hold. I, I didn't have them going up till 2020, but it was always so far out there you didn't worry about it too much. But the point where I'd changed, and it's sort of been creeping up on me that something was wrong here, but by the time we saw the September quarter national accounts, which was the first Wednesday in December, so it was about two months ago, um, those numbers were just uh, surprisingly weak too weak, I thought, and they, they tipped me over the edge. Um, I'd already been sort of heading in that direction, as I said, um, the housing house price data from CoreLogic a day or so before was incredibly soft. Um, but when we saw GDP growth at 0.3% for the quarter, 2.8% for the year, and very weak consumer spending, that's what got me really worried. And I moved to the view that the Reserve Bank uh, next move would be a cut. Right, so um, just, Quickly back on those GDP numbers, um, you mentioned very weak consumer spending. Were there other components uh, of that that um, you thought were con concerning? Well, it was surprisingly soft across the board, um, which we had had this pattern where there was something which was soft and something that was strong and that offset each other and we were sort of okay. But that quarter, that didn't happen. Uh, the investment numbers were still on the soft side. Um, obviously, uh, public demand is still kicking in there, but it was mainly the consumption story. Now, mind you, the Reserve Bank itself has been saying, well, there are risks around the Australian economy. The main risk on the downside relates to housing and consumer spending, but they didn't seem overly concerned about it. And they, I guess, thought that other sectors would fill in the gap. Um, but most importantly, they had, they had consumer spending growing at 3%, which I thought was, was way too strong. Um, but then 
and, and then the back of my mind was this sort of wealth effect phenomenon. Um, there's a lot of debate about whether there is a wealth effect or not. But the wealth effect is basically when your wealth goes up, you feel happier and you spend more. Um, even if your wages aren't growing up, going up much, you're still happy to spend because you can see the value of your house or your shares going up. But when your wealth is going down, you're less inclined to spend because you feel that, well, if my house value is falling, um, that's not so good for my retirement. Likewise, if your shares are coming down. so. That, I think, um, was also a big factor in all of this. And when you look at the consumer spending figures, it looks as if that wealth effect is starting to show up. Now, it was never a huge effect on the way up, and I, res I reckon the resident was never a huge effect on the way up. If you just look at retail sales, look at consumer spending, they weren't exactly booming, but they were doing a lot better than they would have been if the savings rate hadn't fallen. Right. That's the key point in all of this. The savings rate went down from something like 9% to 2 or 3 depending on which revision you're looking at. <laughs> um, and that was because people in New South Wales were seeing their wealth go up and even though their wages weren't going up much and their income wasn't going up much, they were still happy to grow their spending at an okayish rate. So it was that, just enough to keep some support under there and keep some momentum yeah, on the that's consumer right. side. Yeah, yeah I think I think everyone remembers the, uh, the headlines that were out, I think uh, probably in 2016. Uh, I remember there was a big headline about um, Australia, your house is earning more than you are in a year. And that was the kind of uh, sentiment that I think was feeding through to a lot of people where it's like, well, geez, I haven't got much of a pain increase, but my house has gone up you know, uh, in unrealized terms by, uh, by like $80,000 in a year or something like that. And uh, people felt a little bit more confident. So um, it's not surprising that uh, a lot of people think that there's downside risk now that uh, we're seeing house prices fall and, and quite rapidly. So what do you think happens from here? I, I do, I sort of worry about the hot summer and the impact that that will have had because I think bizarrely, um, I mean, this won't show up until the March GDP quarter results. So we'll get the December quarter first. Um, that's due, due at the start of March. And then a few months later, we'll obviously get the, the March quarter. Um, and the really hot summer, this massive heat wave that we've had affecting, you know, Sydney, uh, Melbourne and Adelaide, um, I think it might actually lift retail spending a little bit uh, because people are inside in the cool shopping centres rather than being out doing other things. Um, but that also means that they may not have been working or doing things that are more productive. Um, certainly the agriculture uh, sector, um, you know, under a lot of pressure uh, as a result of, you know, through the December quarter and, um, uh, and, and through obviously the start of the March quarter. So, um, you know, and we had very bad retail sales numbers, uh, Dave, for December the other day, didn't we? Sure, we had uh, retail sales, nominal terms uh, down 0.4%. Uh, if you go and strip out food, it was down 1%. So big falls, unusual falls, but uh, you've got to weigh that as a fact that we obviously saw a bit of transfer of uh, Christmas spend into November by, uh, by Black Friday and, uh, and Cyber Monday sales. But for the quarter itself, no, uh, Turnover without, uh, when you remove the uh, effects of prices, was only up 0.1 of a percent. Now that was actually weaker than the, the September quarter uh, without revisions, that was 0.2 of a percent. So really gives you an indication that no, it doesn't feel like there was a lot of spending going on. And then you talked about you know, the hot summer may have gone and encouraged people to go to the shops. Like I, I couldn't help but look in the, uh, the performance of services index from the AI group. They go and do the various uh, uh, subsectors. And for retail, they said conditions in the retail sector were deteriorating the fastest rate in six years uh, in January, uh, which doesn't really fill you with, uh, with confidence, particularly when you throw in other things like consumer confidence from, uh, from Westpac, 
whilst it's still fairly evenly balanced between the number of pessimists and optimists, it fell to multi-year lows as well. So there is quite- And business, um, the NAB business survey uh, as, as well. Retailers like, was, was a clear standout in the weakness category there in terms of everything else. So all, this, all the ducks seem to be lining up to go and suggest that it was a pretty weak Q4 for the consumer side of things. And that seems to have gone and moved across into a, to the early parts of Q1. So it is a little bit concerning when we're talking about something here, which is you know, 55% out of the, uh, of the mm. Australian economy. Yeah. And um, one of the other things that uh, comes out now a bit more regularly, and I think it's been interesting to, um, there just seems to be this very, very sharp uh, 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 contraction in, in year over year in car sales. Mm. Um, I think 7% again in January, um, looking at double digits in some, some months year over year, uh, well, relative to the previous year, mm. um, uh, in uh, some months last year. Uh, Shane, where else are you looking in like that? Because um, you, you're talking about now 50 basis points, are you? Um, over what time period? Well, my, my view was that the Reserve Bank late last year had, had a tightening bias. Their inclination was the next move would be up and it would take them a while to get around to actually easing in the absence of a severe negative shock. You know, if another GFC came along, they'd move quickly, but I, I thought that they, it was going to be a process of gradually shifting, that they would move to a neutral bias, they would make downwards revisions to their growth forecasts. I think, by the way, they're still too optimistic, talking about 3% growth this year and 2.75 next. I think that's still too optimistic and 2.75% consumer spending. And so they've still got more downwards revisions in growth to come. I don't think, I mean, if you look at Phil Lowe's comments the other day, he seemed to be implying that the data they had suggested a stronger December quarter. Whereas if you look at the numbers that, uh, that David was just referring to, <laughs> that's debatable. Yeah. Um, look at the retail sales numbers, you know, what weaker in the December quarter than it was in the September quarter. Mm. And the trade numbers, Imports fell, you could say, well, technically, mathematically, that means trade might contribute to growth. Well, when you run the numbers through, it looks like uh, prices rose quite dramatically last quarter, so trade might be a zero contributor. So right. to get a pickup in growth, you do have to get much stronger public spending or investment or something, and that seems unlikely. So I think their growth numbers are still too optimistic. So they'll have to do some more downwards revisions, then they'll move to an easing bias, then eventually they'll ease. And we're assuming by the time all that plays out, it's sometime in the second half. So we had penciled in uh, a cut in August and a cut in November. Um, of course, there's a bit of a complication going forward that if they don't cut uh, by April, then we're in the midst of an election campaign and they probably will want to look at the next budget to see whether there's How stimulatory tax cuts is. and all that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, they'll probably want to wait to get the election out of the way because uh, they don't normally like to go in the midst of election campaigns. They have in 2007, but they don't normally like to do that. So that takes us to June at the earliest, probably. Um, but whatever it is, I think there'll be two cuts this year, taking the cash rate down ultimately to 1%. Hmm. Um, other things that I'm looking at... In your at, career, did you, did you ever think you'd see interest rates at 1% in Australia? No, no, no I thought that would be <laughs> impossible. To get yeah. that because don't forget my career started off um, 35 years ago now uh, when inflation was uh, was very high this was the uh, the early 80s mid or early mid 80s inflation after was very just high. not long after the oil shock uh, I, yeah I guess. there was and an oil shock there uh, in the late 70s um, it, it took a lot to get inflation back down interest rates were regularly double digits uh, often very high double digits so one percent is the polar opposite to, <laughs> to what it was back then. 
So yeah, that that would surprise me. In fact, yeah, you know, I still sort of wonder. You know, still surprised that it went at one and a half percent. But I think the reality is that other countries have shown this is possible. You look at Japan; they left it too late, late to provide monetary stimulus. Now they're sort of trapped in a zero rate world. Uh, Europe is still around zero. America has raised rates a couple, a few times, and here they are in the twos. And, yeah. they're thinking, and they've had to stop. And they've had to stop. <laughs> so this is very different to the world um, I started my career in. Yeah. And um, the risk is that the longer we delay getting inflation back up to target, that longer people will believe that it's normal and that the more they will start to budget for perpetual wage rises of 2% or so and yeah. um, price expectations will ratchet down and it'll become entrenched. And the problem in all, all of that, people say, well, who cares? You know, 2% inflation, 3%, who cares? Well, the problem is that if you allow it to stay low for a long time, um, sooner or later you will get an economic downturn and then you might get knocked into deflation. And although, which you, which, you do not want. which you do not want. Now, the theory of falling prices is nice, but when your wages starts falling as well, it may not be so nice, particularly if you've got a fixed amount of debt, dollar amount of debt, it won't fall, but your wages and your income might. So you don't want to go into a period of deflation. So I think it is very important for the government, for the Reserve Bank rather, to, in terms of the credibility around their inflation targeting regime, to get that up as soon as possible mm. and to leave it lingering below target for a long time, I think is very dangerous. Yeah, and it has seemed to be that, you know, just hovering below at core inflation, sort of 1.8 sort of percent, 1, yeah. 1.8, 1.9. Uh, and uh, as somebody put it to me, you know, inflation is low and uh, unemployment, um, even though the headline number is 5%, there's a still a lot of slack uh, mm -hmm. in the labor market too. So uh, unemployment is relatively high uh, or is certainly higher than it than it could be a lot of slack left in there and inflation is low and that is the case for cutting uh, and just try and kick it back up uh, into the target band and uh, yeah um, so the other thing that touched on there is obviously we've got an election uh, there is money in the bank um, and um, we might touch on commodity prices a little bit later but th this is going to I mean it looks like uh, I think CBA changed its forecast price target for iron ore in the short term to $100 a tonne, as we had this tragedy in Brazil, but that has like stripped out millions of tonnes of uh, supply uh, out of the equation. Um, and um, uh, you've all of a sudden got this, you know, scenario where I think iron ore markets are closed at the moment or not functioning because of the Chinese New Year. Yeah, well, spot markets are, are very quiet and generally not moving this time of year because uh, the most active user is, uh, is China. So realistically, like even Chinese futures are on trading. So. Uh, the only real thing you can go and look at is what's going on in, uh, in Singaporean uh, iron ore futures. And they've been creeping up at uh, the Samarco uh, you know, disaster. I suspect when trading resumes in full uh, next Monday, uh, we'll probably see quite a, quite a move. Obviously, it's, it's had a very big move so far. But uh, given what we know, given the uncertainty about you know, supply, uh, Brazil in particular for, for higher grades, uh, it all points to the potential for at least some uh, some short-term upward momentum. And that has been a big contributor over the last uh, few years um, with that iron ore price staying a bit more elevated than most people thought and certainly that was budgeted for um, um, by Treasury. Uh, you had this great result in terms of uh, company profits, um, or com tax collections, tax receipts from companies and uh, the budget has repaired um, 
as fast as it has and uh, now it's basically by, by the middle of this year it looks like it'll be it's on track to be completely in balance mm -hmm. uh, and there's likely to be a new government you know um, I mean, we can sort of say, well, it's not over yet and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I think it's one of those times, certainly the various times I've covered elections over the years, um, there's often a sense that the country has kind of made up its mind. Uh, that would be my uh, reading on the situation at the moment. Um, so we're likely to have a change of government. Um, but uh, there's an election process to go through, which can introduce a little bit of uncertainty anyway. Uh, Westpac talks about, you know, slowdown in job creation uh, through these kind of periods. But again, there'll be money in the bank, uh, and this will be an important thing, I guess, uh, won't it? So we'll see the size of the fiscal stimulus um, come about April, um, at least under the coalition's plan, yeah. and then Labour will have its own ideas. Yeah, yeah the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, the MIFO as they call it, when it was released in December, showed that three, roughly $3 billion per annum in revenue had been set aside for revenue decisions taken but not yet announced in the words of the budget papers and that would that would uh, suggest that at least the tax cuts are going to be at least three billion dollars per annum now the problem is that that's only about 0.1.2 percent of gdp it's it's uh five dollars six dollars a week uh for a taxpayer and that doesn't buy much these days um, so it would need to be a lot more than that to have an impact um, I suspect that it probably will be more than that. If you uh, do the rough maths, I think roughly speaking, each $10 rise in the iron ore price adds, once it walks through this, works through the system, about $3 billion annually to the budget revenue. So if at the moment, let's take the prices when they closed in uh, China last week, so we ran $85 a tonne or something like that. The budget, I think, is still assuming $55 a tonne, so that's $30 higher which means close to $10 billion added to the budget bottom line, which, um, which well, it really pushes us over into surplus. Now, of course, the government won't assume that that will be sustained um, because there's a, there's a temporary, um, eventually Vale At least will, we hope not. Yeah, at least we hope not. At least sooner or later, Vale will get us act together, one would assume. Um, big assumption. But they would. the reality is that as the money comes in, the longer it keeps coming in, the more it does go into revenue and so it looks like this year's budget this financial year's budget will look a lot healthier and therefore there is scope i think for some um, uplift in that stimulus to come through so the three billion dollars they've allowed for could become six billion dollars which would mean something a little bit more substantial which is what uh, 0.2, say 0.3, 0.4% of GDP, mm. so a bit more substantial in the way of stimulus. The question then becomes whether that is enough to head off lower interest rates. And it may be, but I tend to think it probably won't be. I think they'd probably need to do some more. Yeah, they need, um, need to do both. Yeah. But fiscal stimulus would certainly be helpful here. I think there is an argument from some there that everyone's knee-jerk reaction is, look at interest rates, let's cut them again, um, which isn't a perfect response. You know, it would have been nice over the last few years if we'd had some, some fiscal stimulus. But I think the problem has been that we haven't had a lot of scope in Australia. We weren't in a significantly dangerous situation. So opening up the, um, the government spending spigots and cutting taxes at a time where we're already in deficit wouldn't have been a, a bright move. So that's why the Reserve Bank had to do all the heavy lifting. Um, but at least we might have a little bit more flexibility coming into mid-year. Yeah, and they can fairly confidently, uh, you know, I think one of the really big things about just for the reality on the ground for people is that 
um, consumers need a break, households mm. feel like they need a break. Um, you know, the, we talk about bill shock, um, you know, just power bills, all those kind of things. I don't know, I see my water bill, my power bill, I'm just like, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, you well, know, apparently they're going backwards for the time being, so. Yeah, yeah off, a, off a very, very high base, I might add. Yeah, I know, it, like, you know, they come, you know, back, you know, maybe a hundred bucks or something in a quarter, which is still enormous. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, um, so I think consumers need a break. The best way to do that um, is through income tax cuts delivered, you know, targeted at the middle. Um, <clears throat> and I think that'll be, you know, that might put a bit of spring back in people's steps, mm. you know. There was some talk, speculation or whatever it is, that the government might adopt some handouts out of this year's budget, um, as John Howard did prior to the 2007 um, election. But arguably there was a bit of a backlash against that. There was some saw that as a, uh, as a bit of a bribe. But, the, yeah, yeah by the electorate. But that's still a possibility. The experience in 2008 quite clearly indicates that those checks in the mail helped. Mm. You know, we can get $1,000, you won't spend all of it, you might spend some of it, and people were buying flat screen TVs uh, <laughs> back when they came on the market yeah. uh, all those years ago. But, um, yeah, when everybody has their crisis TVs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, history, history shows that fiscal stimulus does help if you put it in the right, mm. right areas. And put it into infrastructure and, uh, you know, maybe education, et cetera, you know, so you get that productivity yeah. benefit uh, as well. Uh, hopefully down the track, but uh, yeah. Um, so the, obviously the, the immediate hit uh, is through income tax cuts, mm. and um, so it'll certainly be interesting, um, uh, and we'll definitely be keeping a close eye on it uh, or as we go ahead in the year. Um, all right, going to take a very quick break, and uh, then we will uh, talk um, about what's going on in the rest of the world. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan here with David Scott, and our guest is Shane Oliver, uh, Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Okay, um, so um, looking around, a big part of you know the Australian slowdown, you know, sort of the deteriorating outlook for Australia. With all of these things domestically, there's another big input into that, which is the sort of um, what appears to be slow, a, a faster than expected slowdown in global demand. So part of it is maybe trade wars, but Europe is looking a bit weak. Uh, and um, the US, um, we touched on it earlier, the Fed has decided actually um, we may not uh, continue uh, lifting rates as fast as, as we can. Maybe let's start with the US. Um, Dave, do you want to just go back over what happened with the Fed and um, how that picture suddenly changed in, um, in December. Well, they went and uh, hiked rates again, of course, to, uh, in December. And um, then they went and were forecasting that they'd go and have another uh, two rate increases this year and then another one uh, next year. And then the markets tanked. Um, volatility spiked uh, quite significantly. Uh, equities were, uh, were in a bear market very briefly. I think the S&P briefly went and uh, traded down 20%. Uh, obviously, uh, spreads on, uh, on high yield credit was blowing out. Uh, volatility was, uh, was everywhere in currency markets. The Australian dollar was getting hit. Australian dollar fell to the lowest levels of the GFC very briefly as well at one point. Um, and whilst the US data was starting to just show signs of rolling over, which wasn't totally unexpected given the fiscal juice that had been applied to the economy uh, prior to that and where unemployment currently sits, um, the Fed uh, saw an off and they've now walked back. Uh, so they're going to be patient, as they, uh, they call it. 
And uh, so pretty much uh, financial markets have got no more hikes priced into their curve. Uh, the next move for them will be a cut, uh, most people suspect, based on current market pricing will be next year. Um, the Fed still seems to be trying to go and lean against that a little bit and try and coerce and say, no, we still want to go and get policy maybe a little bit tighter. We think it will need to be required. Um, but everything I've you know, been said, the, uh, the outlook from uh, where they were late last year to where it is right now is very different. And obviously, financial markets have loved that. Uh, stocks have rebounded, commodity prices have rebounded, uh, you know, US dollars uh, started to go and show a bit of signs of wavering. So it, uh, it all you know, has that reflationary feel like, oh no, the Fed's back, no, the Fed put is back uh, the first time under, uh, under Chairman Powell. Um, that's obviously what we've seen over the past couple of months is this huge sell-off in markets and then an almost equally as big rebound. Shane, the run that the US economy has had since the GFC is extraordinary. Um, uh, to you, do you think there's got, you know, there's this kind of question over like, surely, you know, there's got to be a contraction sometimes because that's basically what the US economy does. It grows very well for a while and then you get these little recessions, uh, sometimes uh, bigger ones. Um, well, certainly like we had um, 2008, but um, uh, how do you, do you, do you think there's another couple of years left to run in this? Do you think there's something different but, uh, about this phase yeah, of growth? Yeah, well, this cycle has been different because it's been more gradual than normal. If you look at GD, the track up in GDP over time has been slower than it has compared to other cycles. Uh, and that perhaps reflects post-GFC caution. The GFC was such a shock that it really um, had a longer lasting impact on consumer and business expectations. So it took them slow, a longer time to ramp up investment, a longer time to get the housing construction upswing going, a longer time to get consumer spending going to reasonable levels. So therefore, even though it's approaching being a record economic expansion, I think by the middle of this year from memory, mm, it, it becomes a, a record, record in the sense that you haven't had two consecutive quarters of contraction. There has been a few con odd contractions in there, but they're not <coughs> too consecutive. Um, so that will make it a record. But as they say, economic expansions don't die of old age, they die of exhaustion. They die when you get excess, you know, over, um, over investment, um, housing, construction booms, um, excessive debt growth, um, excessive inflation and wage demand, so the Fed has to slam the brakes on. And you can argue, well, we haven't got to that yet. Mm -hmm. There's been pockets of problems here and there, but it's not generalised or widespread enough. It's nothing like the GFC or the tech boom that we had, or, sorry, the subprime boom or the tech boom. Um, and therefore, you could argue it can go on for longer. Now, you, we, arguably, we're closer to the end than, than we were because unemployment is 4% uh, or, or lower, depending on when you look at it, 4% or lower, that the jobs market is a lot tighter, wages growth is picking up. So we're further through the cycle. Um, but you could argue that last year's little whatever it was <laughs> scare um, has set back things a bit and extended the cycle. You know, the collapse in the oil price has taken pressure off inflation in the US, uh, which is perhaps arguably a factor in taking pressure off the Fed. Um, and therefore, you could argue the cycle could go on for a little bit longer from here. Mm. Therefore, it looks to me like the fall in US shares last year, which was 20%. Uh, I think intraday, mm. it was more than 20% intraday. You know, a close, daily closes, it was 19.8%. Yep. Whatever it was, it's 20%. Close enough. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. close <laughs> enough. 
And um, back in 2015-16, uh, it was 14%, and back in 2011, I think it was 19%. So you could argue that those pullbacks in around 2011, around 2015-16, and this most recent one were sort of mini bear markets, mm -hmm. um, and they had the effect of sort of prolonging the cycle, because each time you have one of those mini bear markets, there's some sort of economic slowdown, the PMIs slow down, um, the Fed has to sort of change direction, which it's now doing again, or changing course to some degree, go. and yeah. then you, you sort of wait on a little bit longer for the, so, for the so, penultimate peak. So a question um, for you. Um, I think one of the really interesting things has been like since the 90s, really, you've had this, uh, this exercise in inflation targeting uh, by central banks, yeah. which has become um, standard practice. Um, but um, do you think possibly they're getting, they've now, and, and through that period, we've had inflation targeting, we've had zero interest rates, and we've had QE, QE2, and so there's these different, the, the, the central banking policy uh, armory has expanded, uh, and then there's also the age of forward guidance and much more uh, active use of that mm. where necessary by central banks. So they've kind of expanded how they communicate and interact with the markets. Uh, and you know, it's been a couple of decades um, of this now. Um, and do you think part of this is maybe that central banks are actually getting quite good at? Um, and I thought the Fed was a classic case in December of being able to use all the various different, uh, you know, including just what the chairman says. Mm. Um, so do you think this is part of it that you know all these extra different central banking tools they're maturing now? So there's a bit more it, it's it's quite possible hmm. that they've got so many different tools at their disposal that uh, if they deploy them properly then that results in a smoother cycle you could sort of head off things a bit quicker but sooner or later they will make a mistake or the markets will make a mistake because whenever something comes along to make something smoother in theory then the market adjusts and takes on more risk than they should yeah. um, and then ultimately that sets up the sets up the failure at some point in time so you could argue that faith in central banks smoothing it out and getting it right has become unjustifiably too high or too, too strong. Um, and then that sets up the downswing. Uh, I mean, putting aside what happened in December, which looked like a bit of miscommunication on the part of Powell, um, and then the backflip, which came starting in early January at the American Association of Economists, I think it was, uh, where you had a, a talk there or discussion with... Um, uh, Yellen and Bernanke. Um, and, but through it all though, um, the message seems to be coming that they will all use all tools at their disposal. In fact, I think he said that. Right. We, we, we might even do more quantitative easing. He sort yeah, of said yeah, that, yeah. you can read that in there. We might even cut interest rates. And yeah. that I think is what got markets so excited. They're thinking, oh, okay, we're not just going in a straight line. We're not on autopilot by any means. They might do all of these sorts of things. Yeah, and yeah. maybe now, Perhaps now the market's starting to become a bit too complacent again. Yeah, yeah. Um, that the Fed, the, the central banking put is yeah, yeah. still there and yeah. Um, it's still there. I mean, we talked about the Greenspan put and Bernanke put prior to the GFC, but it didn't stop the market falling 55% <laughs> back then. So yeah, it, can, yeah, yeah. it can still fail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so speaking of, of, um, of failing and problems, um, let's skip over to Europe now. Um, Germany... Uh, Italy, um, I think, looking like pretty weak, um, potentially recessionary. Um, They're in a technical recession. Uh, technical right? recession, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Germany looking pretty crooked too. 
Uh, and Brexit now appearing to me to look like just I don't actually see that there's a way through there. I, before, if you'd asked me before Christmas, November, I said, look, they'll figure something out. Um, but, you know, Donald Tusk over the uh, overnight, you know, we're recording on Thursday, um, Donald Tusk saying, you know, that there's a special place in hell for the Brexiteers and, you know, insisting that the Irish backstop has got to be there. Um, May, Theresa May has not been able to put together something with a backstop that's acceptable to her and the party. Um, uh, and um, and to the parliament. And um, so it just, like, we're not far off this now. It's only a matter of eight weeks or so, less than eight weeks, and um, that they're supposed to be, you know. So there'll be some extension, but there is a possibility that they'll crash out with that. I, I'm sure Shane will definitely know this. I know from my time having to go and trade through the European debt crisis that European policymakers like nothing better than leaving something to the last minute and some dramatic outcome. The number of times where it was, I'll be sitting there, you know, uh, you know punting around some you know, Euro Swissy or something like that. Um, it'll be like mid-afternoon in Australia and European policymakers will be still locked in a, in a cabinet room somewhere trying to go and thrash out a deal. Most of the time it was involving Greece uh, <laughs> and, and, and Greek debt uh, and Greek debt forgiveness uh, and IMF programs and the like. But um, I suspect that one way or another, the possibility of a hard Brexit will be avoided, whether they choose to go and extend it or whether they come with some dramatic uh, announcement uh, at the 11th hour to go and make it seem like a heroic uh, circumstance. I suspect that maybe I'm being uh, a bit complacent in, the, in my views, but I suspect that you know, past form is going to go and uh, repeat again. What's your base case on this, Shane? So let's talk well, about it, Brexit first and then we'll talk about you. Uh, well, your... Okay, Brexit. So- sounds like uh, David's. Um, that something will be worked out. It's in no one's interest to have a hard Brexit. And if you look at the British Parliament and add up the parliamentarians who actually support a hard Brexit, it looks like about 10%. Um, they either prefer no Brexit, and I think most of them actually prefer no Brexit or, or second best to soft Brexit. Um, and likewise, the rest of Europe would prefer some sort of deal. Because if you see the economic projections, they basically imply that if there's a hard Brexit, it knocks about 3% off the UK economy and it knocks about 0.5% off Europe. Not, not a disaster for Europe, um, but still, the, the most recent growth numbers in Europe were 1.2%, and there's issues about Germany and Italy, as mentioning. Um, so having that would not be a, a positive for them. So I think some sort of deal will be hatched at the last minute, and um, I, I suspect, I, I'd say 80% probability, not quite as high as the parliamentary numbers, but 80% probability that it's either no Brexit or a soft Brexit. But I just don't know how it's going to unfold from here because it's, uh, it's all incredibly messy. The parliamentarians have shown that they can't seem to work it out. Uh, the British with the Europeans seem to be unable to work it out. Um, and it's not as simple as having a change of government because although Labor, I think, would support, most Labor voters in the UK would support staying in the European Union, um, their leader doesn't. That confuses things a little bit. Yeah. Best outcome, common sense outcome, would be have another referendum. The last one was a dud, yeah. uh, because I didn't, I didn't agree with it, but <laughs> have another yeah. referendum and yeah. see what the people say. And I reckon that uh, Donald Tr- Tusk, there's an element of truth in what he said. He was a bit too strong in his language. But I think the Brexiteers lied as to how easy it would be to get out of the European Union. Yeah. Um, and uh, they basically said, we can get out. Uh, but we'll have all the benefits of being in. 
And I think yeah. that was, they misled the British people. And we people. got money for the NSA, NHS yeah. and yeah, yeah. They, they misled the British people really. And mm. this has shown the difficulties in Brexit. So um, the other thing is quickly looking at uh, around Europe. Um, what's behind the deterioration in conditions there? Is just, again, you know, just the <laughs> expansion getting long in the tooth or is it just... Oh, it's part of that, but no, I don't yeah. think so. I think the main thing was that, uh, I, I think it, you get a lot of the debate, a lot of it dates back to when the, the wheels started to fall off around Italy. Right. If that mess hadn't arisen, it, it, it's sort of like a bad news story hanging around, and that's adversely affected confidence. It's obviously already knocked David. It's not David was saying, but it's already knocked Italy into a mild recession. Uh, so that's one factor. The other factor was Germany introduced tougher auto emission rules, which has adversely affected German growth. Now that should be temporary, but you look at some of the data, maybe it's not. Um, but I think at the end of the day, they probably do need to provide more stimulus in, uh, in Europe. Trouble is that the central bank can't seem to agree what to do at the moment because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, Mario Draghi has to step down. Yeah, into this year. He's, this year. Yeah, I think it's October or something along yes, those lines. Yeah. Sometime this year, mm. which is a bit sad, you know, because I regard him as a, a bit of a hero through the Eurozone crisis in yeah. terms of whatever it takes and fixing things up. Um, so maybe there seems to be a bit of a standoff there. They've ended QE prematurely, I think, and don't seem to have thought much about what they could do going forward. I think at the end of the day, what really needs to happen in Europe is Germany needs to bite the bullet. They've been running a budget surplus. They've got their debt levels down to pretty manageable levels. They need to bite the bullet and give tax cuts to German people. Um, that would help stimulate the German economy and help the rest of Europe in the process as well. That would be the ideal thing here. Um, and the ECB could probably help that long by providing another round of cheap financing for the banks, another round of LTROs. LTROs yeah. yeah. So um, the US at so, being so late in its cycle, um, these this apparent slowdown in, in, uh, in, in, in Europe, uh, which appears to be gathering a bit of momentum now, um, uh, some other little risks starting to appear around there. And then we get over to China, um, uh, Australia's biggest uh, trading partner. We might finish up on this, but uh, just quickly look at the situation there. Uh, you had a note out um, on uh, on the China slowdown um, today, I think. Uh, yeah. I think um, so um, the question always with China is like, is the slowdown, is, is the, slow, the real slowdown finally here? Right? Are we finally going to start yeah. to see five handle on growth or, or whatever? Um, what do you think? It's possible we might see a five-handle, but I think if we did see it, it would be temporary. Uh, I, I think what's happened in China is that they got it in their heads. They wanted to slow down the, 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 the um, accumulation of debt in the economy, particularly the shadow banking-related debt, and so they pushed too hard on that. That slowed up the, the availability of credit to the small private companies, which has driven the slowdown we're seeing at the moment. Then you add in all this talk about a trade war, and that's adversely affected confidence on top of that. Um, in the very short term, it could slow down a little bit more, if not for any other reason, but exports were front-loaded front, uh, to avoid the tariffs going to the US, so they might fall some more in the early part of this year and could give us a five-handle. I don't think so, but it's possible. Um, but I do think that we're seeing quite a lot of stimulus coming through now. We've seen, obviously, monetary stimulus, the reduction in their required reserve ratios for the banks. We've seen... You know, rough estimates suggest a 2 to 3% stimulus coming through in terms of mainly tax cuts, but also some infrastructure spending. And therefore, I think growth will pick up through the second half of the year. But this is, 
you've got to bear in mind that that's probably only going to be aimed at getting average growth this year of around six, six and a half, say 6.2 percent. It's not aimed at getting growth back up to 10 percent, which is what happened at the time of the GFC. Growth slowed to six and a half, went all the way back up to 10. Um, and it's going to be more focused on tax cuts, getting the consumer going, which is not the sort of infrastructure related investment boost which is applied in the past therefore the booster commodity prices beyond the iron ore price spike due to vale is um, not going to be as great yes yeah, so the impact the for the australia yeah although there's obviously the upside that you get you know in terms of the growing export market for consumer goods um, oh that's right and services yeah. Uh, yeah. so australia will still benefit from this yeah. and it will mean a res- an okay outlook for commodity prices but it's, you shouldn't expect the sort of boom that we got coming out of uh, 2008, 2009, or even 2015, 16. I think it's going to be a bit more modest than it was back then. So I, I so I am not that worried about China in terms of right. its impact in Australia, and and that's why I sort of I'm not in the recession camp. I know a lot of people are <laughs> sort of pretty gloomy on Australia, but I'd caution to get getting too gloomy because there are some offsetting factors to what's going on in housing, which probably stops us, which I think almost certainly will stop us sliding into recession. Right. So, um, what do you think those those factors are in, in the housing? In the housing <laughs> well, that, yeah. well, obviously, ha- housing is going to detract. I reckon, maybe up to one point five percent from growth. So it's about 04 percent as housing construction activity slows, roughly speaking, and then one to one and a half percent coming from, um, or say around one percent coming from a wealth effect, as people see their wealth go down and slow down their consumer spending. Um, now that's probably, in the words of the governor, manageable in the sense that when the mining investment boom was ending, that was detracting about two percentage points of economic growth. And that's now no longer detracting at the same rate. It's, it's a fraction of its former size for one thing. So that big drag is gone. Uh, non-mining investment is looking a little bit healthier. There's a few question marks about it. If the, if the business surveys keep coming off like they will, <laughs> then we'll have to worry about non-mining investment. Um, and then you've got... Uh, you know, Chinese growth, export volumes, export values sort of looking okay. So they're the main offsets. And infrastructure spending, I forgot to mention infrastructure spending. So they should keep growth going, but you're talking about maybe 2.5% growth. Do you get a bit worried, Dave? I mean, I know some of the data has been pretty ugly, mm. um, but it can. we do sometimes get this in Australia where you get nasty set of numbers and it yeah, comes fairly it quickly. Where, yeah. Oh... I'm more concerned now than I've been a long time, uh, probably since the GFC. Uh, I think we're very vulnerable uh, in the position that if there was something to be a global shock, uh, just given the status quo, uh, makes us quite vulnerable. Households obviously are still carrying a lot of debt, um, even if there was to go and be a quite significant stimulus program rolled out and the RBS to cut rates. Um, I'm not sure it would have the same clout uh, as what would normally be the case back in the past. Um, the other factor as well, of course, um, as long as the economy stays okay, we've still got population growing at 1.6% per annum. So in real GDP terms, uh, it'd have to be something pretty sinister from abroad to go and see us go and have a, a real GDP recession. Now, I've, I've said in the past, I think uh, in the, one of the last shows last year, there's much more of a chance that you might go and see a per capita um, GDP recession. There's, there's every chance, given what we've seen in the uh, December quarter data so far, and we'll obviously get a lot more GD inputs uh, later this month and early into March. Uh, but there's, I think there's a reasonable chance that we might actually see a per capita GDP, so output per person going backwards. So yeah. that's that's very rare, and that would be that would make people feel like we're in recession. Yeah. Uh, it might not actually be a technical recession, though. Yeah, and that's the one thing I think that I 
um, for me, that's the thing that explains it. For you know, people kind of going, well, I, I read in the papers or on the internet that growth is two and a half, three percent, and you know, lots of parts of the economy are, are actually really good, but I don't feel it. And that's part of that is the GDP per capita kind of uh, part of things because they're having to cut back, and you know, lack of wages growth and all that because they're having to cut back on some things in their own lives, mm. whereas at the same time they're saying, but growth is 3%, like, you know, where's my bar- part of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it kind of feeds into that sort of general sort of disgruntlement. And I think also probably over time, and this is part of what you were touching on earlier, um, Shane, sort of, you know, just people that you get this entrenched sort of bit of disillusionment, people start to adjust their budgets, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting. I did think the NAB business survey uh, was particularly um, uh, interesting. Forward orders went negative. Mm. Um, so you don't want to see that sustained. Yeah, <laughs> um, we'll see. We, we get the update for, uh, for January next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's going to be a relatively short period between the two surveys because the December su- survey that they conduct is actually done, I think, in early January because there's so many people are away. It's very difficult to go and get survey responses. So, but the period that we're talking about just happened to coincide when we had this huge uplift uh, in financial markets. We had the Fed obviously changing their tune. Yeah. Uh, so, if there's not quite a significant rebound back to the levels of where it was prior to what we saw in the December report, I'd say that would get people quite concerned. I know the NAB is, uh, is, is reviewing their RBA forecasts you know, based on what they're going to go and see in that particular report. So, Well, you know, it's uh, Greg McKenna, um, who uh, used to be head of currency strategy uh, at two of the major banks, uh, he always uh, has said to me that if he could only see one data release uh, in Australia every month, it would be the NAB business survey because it just tells him everything he kind of needs to know about where the economy is at in terms of activity, hiring intentions, um, you know, uh, inventories, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, when it was bad, um, uh, yeah, I certainly um, uh, raised, raised an eyebrow for me. Um, okay, certainly will be an interesting, uh, it's an interesting year ahead. Um, now, uh, we might wrap it up there. Always when we get Shane on the show, uh, he's got such an interesting taste in music. Um, always have a quick chat about what you're listening to um, at the moment. Anything good on, uh, on high rotation in well, the this, Oliver uh, household? Some might say, for me, is perhaps a bit more credible than normal. Okay. Because um, I'm normally into Kylie and Taylor Swift and that <laughs> sort of stuff, which I, I still, because it's good uh, head candy uh, stuff. Um, but uh, over Christmas, my daughter bought me Paul Kelly's most recent, uh, I think it was the most recent CD called Life is Fine. Right. And uh, I, I, he's sort of like one of those Australian guys you respect, but I'd never really gotten into his music. Then I, I uh, because it was a CD, one of those little uh, in cardboard, but good quality stuff, you look at pictures and all that sort of stuff and read the story. Um, I, uh, I put it in the car and I thought, this music's actually very good. Mm-hmm. And I've been playing that over and over. And then I watched um, Paul Kelly at the Opera House, which must have been a, a couple of years ago. I don't know when it was, but and that was an incredibly impressive concert. Right, it was on the ABC. I think it was on iViews or some it could have been SBS. But it's Paul Kelly lately that I'm yeah, listening right. to, um, and it just reminded me. It was around Australia Day. It just reminded me what a great musical heritage we have we in go. Australia, and we don't, often don't give them a lot of credit uh, for it. You know, the, the other foreign stuff is seen as best and Australia second best, but yeah. When you look at the faces listening to Paul Kelly there, listening to the quality of the songs, you've got 
uh, is it Vicar and Linda Bull? I don't know if you know them that well, but uh, I've been seeing them as backup for numerous Australian singers over the years. It just sort of makes me realise how, how great our music is. Yeah, I am, um, <coughs> before Christmas, uh, I do, I'm involved with some stuff around, you know, which is like a small group of people, maybe a hundred, uh, who are kind of uh, young professionals in Sydney who, um, uh, uh, it's called the Sydney Symphony Orchestra Vanguard, and we get some exposure to the musicians, and we, a couple of times a year, we get to go and see the orchestra rehearsing, um, so that they're in their t-shirts and jeans and uh, on the stage. Uh, but they were doing Beethoven's Ninth, which is the Ode to Joy, um, but like with a you know, 200 person choir. Uh, and that was a really pretty amazing experience. You know, yeah. everybody knows the, the particular piece of music, but, uh, you know, being in a room with, you know, and you're pretty close to the instruments mm. and, the, uh, and, uh, and the choir and just the, um, the experience, it was really, really cool. Um, yeah, so, amazing. yeah, yeah. So it's called the Sydney Symphony Orchestra Vanguard, if anybody wants to look it up, it's, uh, it's really great. So and they do a few events a year. Um, so I did a bit of that, but then uh, a bit of Motown as well. So a lot of rock. I got introduced <laughs> to a lot, of, a lot of new rock music over the summer. Um, but um, like bands like Muse, uh, which I thought was awesome. Um, but then uh, Motown, I've been you know, a bit of Aretha Franklin. Uh, and I don't know why, maybe so I watched the Blues Brothers for the first time last year with that, my that's daughter. That's a fantastic movie. Just incredible. I, I, I watched that over again because um, yeah, Aretha Franklin was probably a little bit before my time, um, in the sense that in the 1960s I was only in my uh, before 10, before I was 10. But uh, so I first saw her in um, in the Blues Brothers film. Yeah. The first time I saw that film, I thought it was crazy. But <laughs> yeah. as, as it's one of those things that sort of grow on you over time. It's aging. And so I got when well. she passed away, I got it out again and watched it or dialed it up on Apple or whatever it was. Um, and it was amazing what a great film it is. The, the still bits that Brown. impressed me, yeah, yeah, James Brown, um, the bit when uh, the Blues Brothers are held up in Chicago somewhere by the Illinois Nazis and uh, Jake, or I think it was Jake, could be Elroy, uh, says to the policeman, who's blocking the bridge? And uh, he says, oh, it's the Nazis. And he says, I hate the Nazis. <laughs> and then tries to, to run. It's just like a, a little sideshow. You know, yeah, that's right, they all on, go over the bridge. On the far right. And of course, they're chasing him across America along <coughs> with everybody else. Um, so it's just an amazing film. But at the time, it wasn't overly successful. That's right. Yeah, yeah. As the years have gone by, it's become a bit of a cult oh, classic. It's, it's, it's a roll call of stars like Ray Charles, yeah. uh, uh, John Lee Hooker. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, anything good in the, the, uh, on the Scotty Spotify? Uh, I've just stick to my uh, stick to my rock music. I last uh, last listening to on the way in today was Foo Fighters. So. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, just a bit of Fooies. Yeah, I love the I love the Fooies. They're great. Uh, okay, we're going to leave it there. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Paul Colgan uh, here as always with David Scott. Been great. Love the chat. And, uh, fantastic. Uh, and uh, our guest has been uh, Shane Oliver, Chief Economist at uh, AMP Capital. Shane, as always, fascinating chat. Thank you so much um, for um, your insights. And uh, uh, I have to say, uh, uh, great job uh, getting ahead of the pack on, uh, on that Ray Cook call. Uh, uh, I think it's, uh, there's a lot you. of people going to be following you pretty quickly now in the next few weeks. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's so, been great to be here. 
All right, uh, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. Uh, we're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S, um, and we're all there individually as well. It's me, Paul Colgan, David Scott, and Shane Oliver. Um, the show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on iTunes, where you can rate us and leave us a review. And we're also on Spotify. Just search Devils and Details. We'll catch you next time.